worship. Probably most of you aware that that is from Conway West's new album called Jesus is King. Um, what did I say? <laughs> did I? <laughs> Kanye. <laughs> Conway West. Sorry, Kanye. Um, and if you've been watching the news, suddenly it seems that Kanye is rather boldly declaring that Jesus is King, and that's the title of the album. Uh, personally, I, I, I'm thankful for what we've heard thus far, and I, I certainly hope that it continues. But, but here's the idea, and here's why I bring it up this morning, and here's why we start with that clip. Suddenly, Kanye, the lights have gone on, it seems. And, and all of a sudden, he sees Jesus as this king that he's been waiting for. And so he rolls out this album with that as the title. But the reality is Jesus is King is not just a catchy album title. It's actually a summary of the entire Bible. You, you see, when you look at the scripture, from cover to cover, this is a book about Jesus. And even though Jesus in this particular Bible right here is not mentioned by name until page 869, about two-thirds of the way through, from the very outset of the story, story, Jesus is hinted at, alluded to, and hoped for. And in fact, after his resurrection, Jesus told his disciples exactly that truth. In Luke chapter 24, we read this statement by the Savior. How foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now notice what the Savior says. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. In other words, Jesus was telling his disciples, if they fail to see him in the scriptures, then they fail to understand the scriptures. Let me say that again. If you read this book, any part of it, and you do not see Jesus, then you are not understanding this book properly. This book, from cover to cover, is about the Savior. In light of this, then, it's not surprising that in the Old Testament, there are scores and dozens of prophecies predicting Jesus' coming centuries before it actually happened. Long before King Arthur, or Luke Skywalker, 
or Harry Potter, Jesus was the promised one. He was the one who we were hoping for. He was the one who was predicted. He was the one who was prophesied. He was the one who is and would be and forever will reign as king. Over the next five weeks, we'll be exploring a few of these prophecies together. And today, we're going to start in Psalm chapter 89. It's a very brief passage, but it tells us something explosive about who Jesus is. Look with me, if you will, Psalm 89, verse number 3. The Lord said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn an oath to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. So how does this passage, written several hundred years before Jesus is even born, how does this passage point us to Christ? Actually, the answer to that question has been brewing for several millennia. So in order to answer that question, we need to get several millennia of context, which means my text this morning will not just be Psalm 89, 3 through 4. My text this morning will actually be the entire Bible. So I hope you brought some of your Thanksgiving leftovers with you because we may be here a while. Just kidding. I think we'll be in normal time, but we're going to run through the entire Bible here really in four acts this morning. So you see, according to the Bible, the, the book, Jesus is not merely our prophet or our teacher or even our savior. To be sure, he's all of these things. But written large over human history is the fact that Jesus is king. And he's not just the ruler of a nation, a planet, or even the physical universe. Christ is king over all. His sovereignty is an inevitable reality. Or as, as it says in 1 Corinthians, read what it says with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Which me, leads me to my point this morning, which is simply this. We must see Jesus as king. Just like it seems that Kanye has suddenly been awakened to the kingship of Christ, so you and I need to be freshly aware that Jesus is the king. Look, the story of the Bible is simply this. Jesus reigns. That's the story of all of scripture. Jesus reigns. So let me unpack that for you today in four acts. First thing is this. The story of the promised king, act number one, the case for the king. When God created human beings, he ruled over them in love. And they were happy and satisfied under his care and love and protection until one day they weren't. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. That's what we call the fall. And in that act, in the fall, mankind declared, God is not our king. We will not be ruled by him. We will not be reigned over by him. We will not be protected by him. We will live as our own kings. God is not our king. But humanity's grand experiment of rebellion against God's rule did not go so well. 
Shortly after, Genesis 3, siblings killed one another. Entire civilizations gave themselves to debauchery. Women were marginalized and objectified. Children were murdered and families became hotbeds of manipulation. Nations enslaved those weaker than them and violence wrung amok. And that's just the book of Genesis. Then you go on a few more years and you get to the book of Judges what I would consider to be the bleakest portion in the Bible, where things go from bad to terrible. The book of Judges ends with the gut-wrenching story of a man offering his consort up to become the victim of gang rape. Then he dismembers her body when she is killed, and, and, and through the act, it leads to the genocide of a whole tribe of Israel, which justifies the kidnapping and forced marriages of hundreds of teenage girls. It's like mankind has hit rock bottom. Just turn to the last pages of Judges. You can't make this stuff up. So how does the author of Judges explain this type of depravity, rape and kidnapping and murder and all kinds of terrible things going on? Throughout the book of Judges, there is this recurring phrase, and it goes like this. Judges chapter 1, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did that was right in his own eyes. In other words, to put it simply, the testimony of the early portion of Scripture is this. We need a king. We need a king. As good Americans, hashtag, sorry, Great Britain. We messed that up, apparently. You're not the king we need. At this point, the people of Israel started asking for just that. We need a king? Okay, we want a king. But there was a problem. They didn't ask for the right kind of king. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19. We must have a king over us. Why? Because we need God. We want to follow him. We want to submit to him. No. Then we'll be like all the other nations. They knew they needed a king. But they didn't want the right type of king. They wanted one who would make them like everyone else. So they got Saul. Who didn't work out so well. In fact, Saul's sad epitaph is recorded for us in 1 Chronicles chapter 10. Saul died for his unfaithfulness to the Lord because he did not keep the Lord's word. He even consulted a medium for guidance, but he did not inquire of the Lord. So if you were reading the Old Testament and following the storyline and carefully listening to this kind of subtext going on, you would be saying, we need a king, we need a king, we need a king, and Saul's not it. So what were God's people to do? Well, that moves us to act number two, the promise of the king. The Lord, in his mercy, does not leave his people in a destitute position. Instead, he gives them a new king. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. And notice how this king is different. The Lord has found a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people. This is, of course, David, who would become Israel's most beloved king. And although David had some spectacular failures... All in all, he was said to be a man after God's own heart. In fact, at the height of David's reign, he had aspirations to construct a temple for the Lord. 
So he comes to God. But when David expressed his desires to the Lord, David learned that the Lord had something else in mind entirely. 1 Samuel chapter 7. This is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? Verse number 11. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you a descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Verse number 16, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. Instead of David building a house for God, God promised to build a house through David. David comes and says, God, I want to build you a house. And, David, and God says, oh, no, you didn't. I'm the house builder here. You want to build me a house? No, I'm going to build you a house. It is this covenant, this promise to give David a house that is mentioned in Psalm 89. And as God's promise to David, it was unlike Saul's dynasty, which crumbled. David's house and David's kingdom would go on, as we read, forever and ever. So eventually, in time, David has a son, and his name is Solomon. And Solomon succeeds David on the throne, and it initially looks like maybe this is it. Maybe this is the guy. I mean, Solomon has it all together. He's wise. He's powerful. He's strong. He leads his nation in peace. But if David's failures were spectacular, then Solomon's were cataclysmic. As a result, the Davidic kingdom grew less and less significant. And in time, the once proud city of David was sacked and occupied by one conqueror after another. Israel barely exists as a nation, let alone had an eternal ruler to sit on the throne. And by the time that the Old Testament comes to a close, there is no doubt that God's people were asking, will we ever have a king? David was good. We thought Solomon was the one and then he blew it and things just kept going downhill from now. And, and we don't even have a homeland. We're, we're just a puppet state now. We are nothing. Which brings us to act number three, the identity of the king. Then the gospel of Matthew starts in the New Testament. And, and it opens in a way that to our Western ears seems really weird. Matthew chapter 1 actually starts with this verse. It says this, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then there's a whole bunch of names here listed. Bunch of them difficult to pronounce. Aminadab and Shealtiel and Salmon and Rehoboam. It's more difficult than Kanye, who is apparently Conway. Uh, Jehoshaphat. Hezekiah, Manasseh, I mean, Jeconiah. There's all of these names. Why are they here? Well, you see kind of the importance of this passage when you look at the middle verse of the genealogy. Verse number five of Matthew chapter one. Salmon followed Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. 
The whole point of this genealogy is to trace the fact that Jesus is directly in line with King David. He's not just called David, he's called King David. And there's a reason for that because what Matthew is doing is he's establishing the identity of Jesus. That he's not only Savior, he's not only Lord, but he is the promised one who we've been looking for for all these generations. He's the king that was promised to David. He's the one we have been hoping for. But the thing is, is that Jesus is not the king that anyone anticipated. He was born in a stable. He grew up in a carpenter's house. His followers were fishermen and tax collectors. He sought no political power. And to top it all off, to make matters worst of the worst, he was executed. But not just some regular death. He didn't die peacefully in his sleep. He died as a common criminal, mocked with no tomb of his own. He was poor, destitute, unknown, and killed like a criminal. But in all this, in spite of all the lack of trappings of glory and power and political prestige that surrounded Jesus. He never denied being king. In fact, on the very day where he died, where he was abandoned by his group of followers, where he was beaten and mocked and scourged, he's standing there before the person who is kind of the king, the governor of Jerusalem, the person in charge of this area, and he interacts with the Roman governor. Mark chapter 15, verse 2. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You say so. In other words, you bet. It's me. I may not look like it. You may think you have won. You may think that you are really in power. In fact, in that same conversation, Pilate says, Don't you know that I have the power to let you go? And Jesus says, You only have power because I gave it to you. The king that you are so afraid of is standing right in front of you. Why Jesus takes us so off guard is what we often fail to grasp what kind of king he is. Again, his interaction with Pilate is clarifying. My kingdom is not of this world, John chapter 18. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So Jesus willingly went to the cross because the aim of his kingdom was not simply to drive out Rome or restore Israel to prominence on the world scene. The mission of this king was to rescue his people from their worst enemies of all, namely sin and death and the devil himself. When Jesus died on the cross, an inscription was written above his head, the king of the Jews. This placard was meant to be a cruel insult, but the reality was that through his death, Jesus was being the king that humankind needed most. Look, Jesus may not have been the king we expected, but he is the king we needed. He came to establish a kingdom that no political ruler could do. Jesus may not have been what we expected, but he was what we needed. But if you remember, back in Psalm 89, the promise that God made to David is that the Davidic dynasty would be eternal. 
How, how can this be? Jesus, the rightful heir to that dynasty, is dead. I mean, it was a noble and necessary death to save his people. But how can he be the eternal king of an eternal kingdom if he's dead? This is part of the reason why the resurrection is so important. You see, Jesus rose not only to conquer death, but to confirm his kingship. When Jesus stepped out of the tomb, he wasn't, he wasn't just making a statement about his power over death. He was making a statement about his identity. Oh yeah, I'm him. I'm him. I'm the king because I can't die. Yeah, you killed me, but I don't stay dead. Even death itself does not have power over me because I am king of not just a nation. I am king of not just a galaxy. I am king not just of a universe. I am king over everything. After the resurrection, just before Jesus ascended back to heaven, he gathered his disciples together and he gave them what has been come come known as the Great Commission. You know, we're familiar with this at Gospel Hope. We talk about it a lot. When we talk about this passage in Matthew 28, we often talk about the command to go and what? Make disciples. Go and make disciples. And that is well and good and rightfully slow. This is the major thrust of that passage. Go into all the world and make disciples. And yet... Just before Jesus issues that decree, that order to his disciples, in verse 18, we read something terribly significant. So Jesus has died. He's rose from the dead. He's getting ready to send his disciples out, and he makes this world-shattering statement. Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I'm the king. There is nothing that is all beyond the scope of my power. There is nothing outside of my reign and rule. All authority. Every last ounce of authority in the universe belongs to me. And I will dole it out as I see fit. Because I am the long-awaited king. I am the promised one. But after this declaration, Jesus left. And let's be honest. I mean, let's just be brutally, brutally honest. When you look around the world today, it doesn't appear as if Jesus is reigning. This is because, simply put, we live in a time that theologians refer to as the already, not yet. Can you say that with me? Already, not yet. One more time. Already, not yet. In other words, Jesus is already king. His kingship has been inaugurated, but he has not yet fully stepped into office. It's kind of like in, in a small way, it's, you know, we have presidential elections in the United States, and those elections occur in November, and we get the results. And so at that point, the person is like basically the president in November, but when do they actually take office? January. We live in that time a little bit. Jesus is already the king. He's already done all that is necessary to win the vote, as it were. He has been rightfully declared as the one who will reign. He has been rightfully declared as the Lord. And yet, 
We live in a time in which Jesus has not quite fully stepped into office. So that raises the question, right? When? When? When will Jesus be the king in every sense? When will Jesus rule and reign in his fullest? When will Jesus be fully inaugurated and take up the throne? When will that happen? Act number four, the return of the king. After Jesus gave his disciples their marching order and rose into the sky. I mean, that's quite an exit, by the way. Go into all the world, make nations, see ya. And up Jesus ascends. His followers were understandably a little shocked. They're just standing there. And to get them moving, God sent angelic messengers who revealed an important piece of data to them. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 11. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking up into heaven? They're kind of like, because Jesus just disappeared into heaven. That's why. This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. In other words, the king would return. And as the rest of the scriptures make plain, at the second coming, there would be no subtlety about Jesus' kingship. When Jesus came the first time, he was very understated. His kingship was hidden, as it were, veiled, not widely known. This will not be the case when the king returns. Matthew 25, verse number 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all who have believed. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11. Then I saw heaven open and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True and he judges and makes more with justice. His eyes are like a fiery flame and many crowns are on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came out of his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it and he will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. To paraphrase, this dude is bad. When Jesus came the first time, his kingship was veiled. But at his return, such will not be the case. At this time, the whole world will acknowledge that Jesus is the king we need. Or as Philippians puts it, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. See, he's not just king of a planet. And every tongue will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be no denying that Jesus is king on that day and his reign will never end. Revelation 11 verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. That's the story of scripture. We need a king. The king is coming one day. He's not here yet, but when he comes back again, he will rule and reign for all eternity. So when back in Psalm 89, the Lord promises, verse number four, I will establish your offspring forever and will build up your throne for all generations This is what he's talking about. He is talking about the eternal rule of Jesus. But as we've already mentioned, this day has yet to come. It hasn't happened yet. The the full and final rule of Jesus has yet to take place. So what do we do in the meantime? How do we see Jesus as king In this time, remember we live in the already what? In this already not yet time, when we're hoping for Jesus to come back, to show himself for who he is, to reveal his kingship in the fullest sense, what do we do? Well, let me offer two practical suggestions. They're maybe a little bit silly, uh, just to help them be memorable. First of all, we should remember like Dorothy. Say that with me. Remember like Dorothy. Anybody ever seen The Wizard of Oz? That's the Dorothy I'm referring to. In the story, Dorothy finds herself transported from Kansas via tornado to the magical land of Oz. But no matter how fantastical Oz gets, Dorothy always longs to go home. In fact, the climax of the story is where Dorothy has her ruby slippers on. I didn't wear mine this morning. She clicks them together three times and she says what? There's no place like, there's no place like, there's no place like home. And in this world that can sometimes be difficult to remember that this world is not ultimately our home. That our allegiance is not to a a nation or a political party or even a church. Our allegiance is ultimately to a king that we can't see right now. And this is particularly true during the holiday season. There's so much that can distract us from the kingship of Christ, is there not? These are not bad things. These are not evil things. Presents and parties and family gathering. Those are all good and wonderful and have their place. But during this time of year, let's seek to remember that Jesus is king. I mean, of course Christmas is supposed to be about Jesus. Christ is the reason for the season. Blah, 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 blah. But if we're honest... It's really easy for him to get lost in the shuffle, isn't it? So let me encourage you this holiday season. You know, we're just kicking it off here in December. 
It's what many people refer to Advent, right? These, these next several weeks leading to the first coming of Jesus. That's what Advent means, the coming of Jesus. Let's really strive to remember that Jesus is King by doing a very simple thing. Let's spend time in the Word. Now, I have a very practical way to do that. Um, if you're a member of Gospel Hope, you probably just right now got a text. And in that text, there's a little link for a reading program. It's got 25 days of reading scripture up to Christmas just to remind you that Jesus is King. If you're not uh, regular here with us with Gospel Hope and you'd like to get that, just stop by the Connect Center. We'd love to get you that link so that you can download that and just begin to read the scripture this Christmas season. Let's remember like Dorothy, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Or to paraphrase, there's no King but Jesus. There's no King but Jesus. There's no king but Jesus. All of the trappings of Christmas are great, but let's remember who our real king is. Let's use this time of year. It's a gift. It's a gift. Let's use this time of year to remember that the arc of human history ends with Jesus on the throne. That's where all of this is going. That's the climax to the story. The arc of human history ends with Jesus on the throne. And if we don't keep that in mind, we will live our lives in a weird way that doesn't make sense in the end. All of this is passing away, but Jesus will be king. Let's remember that this year. Dads, lead your kids in this. Parents, Work hard to instill this in your children, husbands, wives. Read scripture together, community groups. Let's encourage one another in this. Let's be in the word this season. Not just, did you have a good Christmas gathering? Ask that question. But ask, did you remember that Jesus is king? Second thing. Don't just remember it like Dorothy, but live like Robin Hood. Remember the story of Robin Hood? King Richard is out of the country and Prince John is a usurper and is using the crown for his own self-centered purposes so what does Robin Hood do he becomes a champion and protector of the people and in the process he makes himself an outlaw while I'm not sure if I can recommend Robin Hood's strategy of steal from the rich and give to the poor what I think we can learn from Robin Hood is the need to live counterculturally. Right now, right now, we are subjects of King Jesus. At this present moment, we are subjects of King Jesus and we live in hostile territory. The Bible says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. In other words, right now, he's ruling this little dinky planet we call Earth. But He's not our king. He's a usurper. He's a Johnny come lately. The real king is coming back. So we need to live as outposts of the true king during this day. Your home should be a foretaste of what it's like to live under the rule of King Jesus. Our community groups should be an appetizer of what it means to live when Jesus is ruling and reigning among a group of people. Gospel Hope Church 
should be a display of what it's like to submit to the lordship of Jesus behind enemy lines. So brothers and sisters, let's be a bunch of Robin Hoods because we're waiting for the true king to come back. And he's coming and we know it and our loyalty is to him and him alone. His kingdom will go on forever, ever. This pretender, he's going to die. Let's not live for his subtle little several thousand year kingdom. That ain't nothing. Let's live for the kingdom that will last for aeons. We have a king and he will return and he sees what we're doing and not in the way Santa Claus does. He sees and he blesses his people when they live in faithfulness to him even when persecution are at their heels. So friends, let's be outpost. Let's be foretaste. Let's be appetizers of what it means to live under the rule and reign of the true king. The question we must all ask ourselves is simply this. Are we living in such a way that it makes it clear that our loyalties are to King Jesus? Do people in your life know who is your king? Or is there a question mark? Man, let's be people that are bowing the knee to the true and rightful heir of the universe, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are the promised one. You are the long-awaited Savior. We thank you, Father, that you are the King, that you rule and that you reign. And I pray right now for Gospel Hope Church. I pray that we would be a group of people who demonstrates submission to Christ, who by our lives who by our words and by our actions show without question that you are our king. Lord, make us loyal. Make us brave. Fill us with hope. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and worship our king.